You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I had been in California doing dot-com stuff for the better part of a decade. And I spent a decent amount of time thinking about the company I wanted to start. And I was like, you know what? It's not a tech company. I love starting things. I love entrepreneurship, but I'm not a dot-com girl. This isn't my thing. So I went to culinary school, but I went there like, this is going to be my thing. This is the company I'm going to start. There's a market. There's a need. There's demand. I'm going to help women feel great about themselves domestically. So I came from a place where people had big visions and started things. You don't just get a job. You start a company. So this was going to be my thing. That's why I went to school. I wanted to learn how to really cook so that I could break it down and give home cooks confidence. Were you passionate about cooking before you went to culinary school? I was passionate about my inability to cook. Mm. I was not so different from you today, James. So how did you get a cooking show? I went to work for Martha Stewart because if I was going to learn domesticity, she was going to teach me. It wasn't like you just snapped your fingers and you were working for a top.com and you snapped your fingers again and suddenly you're working for Martha Stewart (laughs) and you snap your fingers again and suddenly... Lifetime is like banging your door down. Do you think there's always a what's next, no matter what you're doing? So I have Allison Task, premier chef and life coach. I'm going to call you both of those things. I'll take it. I have to say your name and then figure out what buckets to put you in. That's right. Why can't I just have Allison Task, like interesting person to talk to? Uh, we could start there. You could do that. I think people can only handle so much information. Allison Task doesn't yet have meaning for many people. Right, so people need the buckets as like shortcuts until uh-huh. they get to know you better. That's right. That's why at a party you say, what do you do? But like, I, I never know how to answer that question myself because there's no like one thing that would, I do. How would you introduce yourself? I honestly can't answer that question. This is hard. <laughs> yeah, because uh-huh. I do lots of things. I do like five or six different things, and it almost sounds like ostentatious to say them all. Right. Because I could say you're podcaster, writer, TV personality, mm-hmm. life coach, mm-hmm. chef, mm-hmm. mother. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what do you, how do you define yourself? It depends on a certain situation. Like, for example, if I'm driving my kids' friends around, they'll say, hey, Abe's mom. For them, my whole identity is who my child is, right? The child sees me through the eyes of that child. He, uh, she's Abe's mom. She's not Allison. They have no idea what I do. But if you're at a party and someone says, hey, what do you do? Well, now you're, you're kind of focused. Well, first off, let's just say you're the <laughs> author of the recent book, Personal Revolution, and the R is in parentheses, so it's also personal evolution. Thank you. How to be happy, change your life, and do that thing you've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, is normally I hate subtitles, because I just think they're just like meaningless things the publisher wants you to throw there. But that's actually a good subtitle because I would say just about everybody feels stuck in some way. There's something that they have always wanted to do and most people just don't do it or they think, oh, I'm going to work really hard for 15 years at something I don't really like or I like mediocre and then I'm going to do that thing I always wanted to do. You procrastinate that thing. Right. And Warren Buffett has a quote about this. Maybe I read this in your book or maybe not. Or maybe you told me it's a Warren Buffett quote. Um, But uh, Warren Buffett has a quote saying, um, that's like uh, saving up for sex until your old age. It's just like a bad idea. Yes. So so we'll talk about that. But I want to talk first about your cooking. So you wrote uh, two books, uh, uh, You Can Trust a Skinny Cook and Lighten Up America. And you also were the host of Yahoo's uh, Blue Ribbon Hunter. What was that? Blue Ribbon Hunter was a show. It ran for about two years. I went across the country to food festivals and found weird food things. Like I went to Spam Jam in Hawaii. I, um, I judged a lobster contest in Maine. So we went around to local food festivals across America. And then you, uh, then then you're host of uh, Lifetime's Cook Yourself Thin, mm-hmm. TLC's Homemade Simple. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been a guest on the Today Show, Good Morning America, Glamour, Business Insider, Mind Body Green. 
I've been on two out of those five. All right. Probably the least important two. Um, <laughs> and you were a spokesperson for Kraft, Borden. I remember at one time, Kraft at one point was owned by Philip Morris, I think. Yeah. And so like this is in the 90s. I had it's a weird. business making websites. And yeah. I remember pitching them and you'd go into the conference room and there were packs of cig. They were like, you know how like yeah. conference rooms have like maybe pencils in a, a box? <laughs> they had like packs of cigarettes and like velveteen cheese or whatever, <laughs> like cheese cubes, like two things that I found utterly distasteful. And I'm like pitching them, we're going to do the best website possible for you. Just felt so. Anyway, you're a spokesperson for Kraft. Um, talk, talk to me about cooking. Like sure. what's, and you talk about cooking in the book too. Like yep. there was one person who came to you where uh, you switched from, you did switch to do the thing you love doing, which is life coaching. But you were also doing something what I think is equally fascinating, which is you were you were cooking and, and a media personality around mm -hmm. cooking. Um, let's say I want to be a better cook. How do I how do I do it? So I got into cooking. I actually did ten years in dot com. And during those oh, ten, that's right. I should have mentioned yeah, that as well. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna gonna hit that too. Those ten years of dot com, I realized like, hey, I'm a good business person. I can do this. I can hang, you know, at the table inventing the internet with people like yourself. That was really fun. But then I got to a point in, when I was thirty, and I was like, ah, I'm ready to have a family. I'm ready to nest and all that good stuff. But I didn't have domestic skills, and I knew it. I couldn't cook. Right? I've got an Ivy League degree, and I can't figure out how to cook. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is we're not born knowing how to cook. We have to learn. So I went to culinary school, and I'm like. I'm going to learn to cook. And furthermore, I'm going to teach this entire decade of women, two decades of women, and the coming decades of women, how to cook. Because yes, women are still expected to be the primary caretaker, right? And people look at us like we know how to make lunch for our kids. And if we can't even feed ourselves, how are we going to do that? So I wanted to take cooking and make it really simple for people. So your question was, how do I cook? You can pick up one of my cookbooks, obviously. Um, what? But but then I couldn't follow recipes. But I don't right. know if I would really get. Like, what's the what? What's the essence of of cooking? Mm. The essence of co cooking is having enough. That, that would be like me asking you how to write a computer program. You have to have enough experience to know what you know how to do to do it without reading a book. So, salad, for example. When you go out to eat, what do you like? Do you like the beaten blue cheese? Do you like, you know, the goat cheese and tomato, the Israeli I, salad? I, I hate to say this is a bad example because I really hate all salads. Okay, fine. I I think I have PTSD about salads because I my when I was a kid, uh, my mom would literally just like tear off like a piece of lettuce and then a raw carrot, yeah, and that would be salad. It's no gross. dressing, nothing. Oh my god! So I really just ever since then I just hate the thought of salad. All right, let's go in another direction. Can you give me an, an something that you like to eat, or perhaps a cooked vegetable that you like? Um, I don't know. Like now I'm thinking about it. I like pasta, but I don't really eat it that much because I don't feel it's that. I would it's only not eat it nice and that healthy. Mm. Uh, when you get older, it's like I feel like it's harder to eat pasta. I agree. Uh, I like fish. Great, great. What kind of fish? Every kind of fish. Cool. So fish tends to be something that people don't love to cook at home because it can stink up your house, especially if you're in a New York City apartment, um, especially a fatty fish like salmon. You cook that on the stovetop, you could be smelling it for days. Your neighbors will be smelling it. The hallway smells it. It's no bueno, right? So something like salmon, the rule of fish is you want eight minutes for every inch of thickness. Turn on a toaster oven, pop it in for eight, 10 minutes, pull it out. Season it, salt, pepper, pop it in, pull it out, you're done. Wait, 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 wait. There was, a, there was something you skipped there. Yes. So wait, you put it in for eight minutes, mm -hmm. take it out, then season it, then put it back in mm -hmm. for another eight minutes. Yeah, you, you I just, jumped, I went too fast. Yeah, I now, went way because too fast. Because the reason I ask is this weekend I cooked salmon mm -hmm. <laughs> and I seasoned it all in advance. Yeah. Put it in for eight minutes, pulled it out. What happened? And it was a little too raw. Oh, it was too raw. What temperature yeah. do you have it at? 350, but maybe the oven, I suspect the oven wasn't working. You didn't preheat the oven or the oven wasn't working? I did, well. preheat, the, I did preheat the oven, but I was staying like in a rental and mm. uh, it's like a vacation rental. Mm, dodgy. Yeah. Dodgy. Mm, but you're saying maybe I should have had it two sets of eight minutes or what should I have done? So with salmon like that, first of all, if you're not sure, you open the oven and stick your hand in it, right? And this again comes with experience, right? Because I'll know a 200 degree oven versus a 350 versus a 500. With fish, an ideal thing to do is to broil it. Broil is direct heat from the top of your oven, right? So broil is, they use the word broiling in, in uh, England as grilling and broiling are interchangeable. Monodirectional heat 
in your t- in your oven, broiling comes from the top on a grill. Obviously, it comes from the bottom. It's a shock of heat to the system, right? That's 550 degrees plus. Best thing to do with fish is pop it under that broiler for eight minutes. Believe me, it'll be done. If you're going to cook it at like a 350 or something like that, you're going to want to let it go a little bit longer. Mm. Um, with something like salmon, I like to slow roast it. I roasted it at 320 for like 25 minutes. Mm. That makes it really nice and rich and sweet. But when do you take it out in the middle? And season it? Yeah, yeah, that was a mistake. So I always season food before. Like I would salt it and pepper it before I put it in. And in fact, if you really want to do it, take the salt and pepper and kind of rub it in. Just salt and pepper? Would you put like garlic or anything like that? I don't because I get really good quality fish and I just want to taste that fish. Mm. Um, after I take it out, I might squeeze a little lemon on it. But I like I like my food simply prepared, really good quality food simply prepared. After all, what were spices about originally? Hiding the flavor of rancid meat. Ah, I didn't Ooh, know that. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to taste a great steak, you're not going to put ketchup or you know barbecue sauce on so, it. So wait, what's the middle part? There is no middle part. <laughs> I was speaking very quickly. I'm sorry. I caught myself. So all you have to do for fish is preheat your oven, ideally a broiler, season it, pop it under the broiler, eight minutes, pull it out, eat. So, and you don't mind me asking about this. I know we're going to get to your book, Personal Revolution, (laughs) how to do what you always wanted to do in life. Yes. But now I'm just, I have you here. I'm going to ask. We're going to ask. We're going to do it. I've cooked three times in the past 20 years. So I'm just going to ask a couple questions. Yeah. So eggs. Yes. Now, I go to two different places in the morning for eggs. One place, the eggs feel just kind of dry to me. The other place, the eggs are like fluffy. How do you make eggs fluffy? Scrambled Mm. eggs. Scrambled eggs. I don't know if this is interesting to anybody. I just really (laughs) want to know this. (laughs) Well, a couple things to do. Um, When I worked at Jean-Georges, Jean-Georges had a style. Jean-Georges? That one. Yeah, right there at Trump Tower. I just ate there. Well, I did the breakfast um, session for him. So he he had this great recipe for eggs where he would actually have eggs the texture of oatmeal so that you could spread it on toast. Not what you're talking about, not fluffy, but it was like really weird and cool. The way you would do it is you'd crack your eggs on a very low flame. Right? So crack your eggs into your skillet, very low flame, put in a few pats of butter and just whisk it, continually whisk it. And then it gets to be the texture of sort of oatmeal. So it's cooked through but it's soft. It's almost like a like a pudding or a porridge. So what are you doing there? You're stirring it to keep the heat evenly distributed. When you cook the eggs, the eggs firm up. But by stirring it, you just keep that gentle, low heat evenly I think that's distributed. What this, must, this restaurant must do. Yeah. Because it's, it's like a little fluffier then. It's like a little softer somehow. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's soft because the- So there's no, you put the eggs in first, then the butter- Eggs and butter in together, and then you gently cook it. It takes like 15 minutes. And so let's say it's two eggs. How many? How big is the butter? Maybe a tablespoon of butter. Be generous. And not like a cube, like you're not cutting it off a bar. A stick of butter is eight tablespoons, one-eighth of a stick. Okay. And you just throw it in, and you just mix it all up together. Yeah, and nice what's and the, gentle. what's the heat under the skillet? Sorry for low. the basic question. You're fine. You're so, fine. You're being very specific. Very low heat. Because you basically, eggs will cook at around 160, 165 degrees, they'll go firm. They'll go from a liquid to a solid. So you want to play in that area between 160 and 180 before it gets hard and rubbery. All right, so these are the only two things I've ever cooked in my life. Now I could do it a little better. Than <laughs> Salmon and I, eggs. Now I, now I know the tricks. Okay, so <laughs> you're doing all this cooking stuff. It seems like you have this amazing career uh, being a chef, mm-hmm. cooking, writing about cooking, being a TV host about cooking. This is like, if someone were to tell you when you were a little girl, hey, you're going to host a TV show about cooking, you're, you're going to be famous on TV, wouldn't you think, oh my gosh, that's the most amazing thing ever. I'm yes. never going to stop doing that. No, I think that's awesome. I can't wait to do it. And then once you've done it, you're like, huh, what's next? I liked it. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Do you think there's always a what's next, no matter what you're doing? Um, yeah, I think you. I think you believe in that too, though, right? I do. Yeah, there's always a what's next. There's always, um, you know, you you write the book. Then, right now, I'm in the phase of um, the last chapter of my book is all about celebrating the achievement. Right, I'm in the phase right now where I'm going to take the summer. Do you know have some conversations like this? Thank everybody who helped me write the book one on one. You know, visit them and say a real true thank you from the bottom of my heart, and have a, have a, a lap of gratitude. Right, that's really wonderful. And then I'll start thinking about the next thing. I, I always find it really hard to uh, celebrate achievements. I don't know why. Like I always feel like 
okay, that was good, but it wasn't good enough. Totally. Now I'm going to move on to the next thing. Totally. That's why I wrote a chapter about this in my book. And in the book, I said, when I got my first book, right? My first, You Can Trust a Skinny book, I opened it up and I was like, damn it, that's wrong. That font's too small. That color's not right, right? My book, my first book just arrived in my lap. A beautiful hardcover, big fat advance. I'm so proud of it. And what am I doing? I'm still editing it. It's done, baby. It's done. Time to enjoy it. Time to say it's not perfect, but it's incredible. Well, and this relates to the difference between success and happiness. And you discuss this quite a bit in the book, or or at least you you address it in the sense that you know the positive effects about being happy, and then, but I'm and the positive effects in terms of your success in career, success in productivity, and so on by having a positive outlook, by being happy. But I'm curious, what's the relationship between? success in a career and happiness. So like a lot of people, so you're you're basically linking them by celebrating the achievement, but I think a lot of people have a hard time doing that. And so what are the benefits of celebrating the achievement? Great. The benefits of celebrating the achievement, number one, you reinforce that you did something well, right? You uh, solidify that achievement in your mind as its own achievement so that you're better prepared to do something again, right? If we're hard on ourselves, we beat ourselves up, we only see what we're not good at. Instead, call upon that achievement. In the beginning of my book, I asked people, what awards did you win in high school? Call upon those wins, summon those achievements that you've had to prepare you for the next thing. Also, it's good for the body to rest, after you've had a big effort, right, an expansive effort and output. Look at my children. They grow like weeds in the summer. It's really nice that they can rest in the winter, right? Grow their brains instead of their bodies in the yeah. winter. Um, so I think having a pause to reinforce the achievement, then just take a little break and rest, rest the body and the mind. And then that third thing, a lot of people helped you in a book. People let me share their stories. People helped me promote it. A lot of people helped. I want to say thank you. But let's say someone's listening to this and you make this distinction in the book between um, algorithmic work and heuristic work. So algorithmic work is what you would typically think of as kind of a, an older traditional type of job, like working in a cubicle, doing rote kind of things, working your way up through the bureaucracy, getting promoted, 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 and you know, then retiring on a little nest egg. And heuristic work is more creative, kind of kind of more, the economy sort of moving more to these sort of gig-like or side hustle-like work where it's a little bit more creative. You have to hustle a little bit more. To It's more of a meritocracy in a weird way um, because you're, you're judged on your results rather than whether you can just do this rote work. And uh, I'm just wondering um, in in... You know, for the people who are listening to this who do the more algorithmic kind of work, let's say they're in their cubicle wondering, well, how can I ever pause? I have to be here 50 out of 52 weeks. What, what does a pause look like for them? How do they celebrate their achievements? Hmm. Well, hopefully the, the, the nice benefit of algorithmic work is you're on and you're off, right? You do your work in that space. If I'm a cashier, I don't take my work home with me. Hmm. I'm not at my desk. I'm not a cashier anymore, right? If I'm an accountant, Hopefully, there are times when you can leave your desk and not bring work back with you. So you press off when you're not working. I am a big believer in the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath that crosses religions and cultures, having that day a week where you rest and you unplug. That's what you do after you have a big achievement. And if you are that worker, you know, that's why we have Labor Day, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, right? All these days are to make sure you can take a break outside of your weekend. So those breaks are really important and essential. It's funny, I was, I was speaking to someone recently about um, the pageantry of, of Christmas and Thanksgiving. And I said, holidays, holy days, days of rest. And they said, no, in certain cultures, these are pageantry holidays. And that is when you turn it out, you do your best. You make the Christmas cookies and the trees and you invite everyone over and you host. You run yourself ragged. When do you then repair after all that work? Right, so a big expansive effort needs a little bit of a break. So, so going back to the cooking, and I won't ask you a recipe <laughs> this time. For you, you went all out. Like it's not so easy to get a TV show. Like you know, you're clearly someone who can execute and do things. And so you you transformed that meta skill. Like you you basically developed this meta skill of a of being able to set big goals and accomplishing them. Being mm -hmm. a host of a TV show is not an easy thing. Being host of a cooking show is incredibly competitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's a million people trying to host cooking shows. You bet. And 
So, so how did you break through that barrier? And that kind of leads into then kind of sort of the techniques you use in life coaching and in this book. You bet. So how did I get my opportunities to host cooking shows? First of all, I am a big, you know, a big believer in say yes. There's no, there's no opportunity to say no. When I was cooking, um, I went to culinary school and I, you know, I'm an Ivy League grad and now I'm in a real blue collar profession. My arms So, so in order to get, you, you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I'm a little bit of an interrupter, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get back <laughs> okay. to it. But like you mentioned earlier, how, you know, you had been doing the dot-com stuff yeah. for, for years and then, and you felt like, okay, now I need domestic skills. Right. Most people don't say, oh, I need domestic skills. Let me go to culinary school <laughs> to learn how to cook. You're right. Like they buy a frying pan and a cookbook or and ask someone, hey, how do I cook eggs? Right, right. So, it's a little overachiever, isn't it? Yeah, like what, like, yeah, and so not everybody's an overachiever. So, yeah. so we'll so get to happened? how do you deal with the not overachievers in your life coaching. <laughs> but so, so you go to culinary school because you decided, okay, I don't know, do you go to like cleaning school after that too? Like what <laughs> What's next? Yeah. Well, you know, so it's a combination of two things. I had been in San, in California doing dot-com stuff for like the better part of a decade. And during that time, people were always asking me, you know, like, hey, Allison, what company do you want to start? You're doing this and you're part of this. When is it your turn? We're behind you. We've got money. We back you. And I spent a decent amount of time thinking about the company I wanted to start. And I was like, you know what? It's not a tech company. It's going to be an analog company. This isn't my jam. I love starting things. I love entrepreneurship, but I'm not a I'm a, not a dot com girl. This isn't my thing. So I went to culinary school, but I went there like, this is going to be my thing. This is the company I'm going to start. This is going to be oh, there's a market, there's a need, there's demand. I'm going to help women feel great about themselves domestically. So I came from a place where people had big visions and started things. You don't just get a job; you start a company. So this was going to be my thing. That's why I went to school because I wanted to learn how to really cook. So that I could break it down and give home cooks confidence. That's what I wanted to do. That Were you was the passionate vision. about cooking before you went to culinary school. I was passionate about my inability to cook. Mm. I was not so different from you today, James. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. Okay, let me just say, <laughs> let me just say, you you were better than me. I'll, so I mentioned I've cooked three times in the past twenty years. One being this past weekend. Yes. The time before that was Valentine's Day, and the time before that was in nineteen ninety one, and uh, uh, on Valentine's Day. It was the first time I ever used this kitchen, obviously, that I was in this apartment I was staying in. And uh, the previous owner or two had left grease at the bottom of the oven. And so I'm cooking a salmon and uh, I set the whole kitchen on fire on Valentine's Day. And so my neighbor... Let me finish cooking it in his kitchen. I would not let you near my kitchen. That's a very <laughs> kind neighbor. That's very kind. People say that about me and driving too. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so you couldn't possibly be worse than me. That's bad. That's pretty, I will tell you, in college, I was worse than my room. I was like the worst cook in our you know, 12-person house. I, I just... I just didn't have this. I may, I may not have been. You, you can win that. I give you. I can. I, can I win. I concede. You win. You win. Um, so then, I, so I, I went after it because I wanted to make it my business. Right. I, I didn't want to just learn to cook. I wanted to help teach others. I saw a need in the market. I saw a hole. You saw a hole, even though there's a thousand cookbooks out there. There's a thousand. There's a cooking channel. There's a food channel. Nineteen ninety nine. I went I went to school in 2000. It was as the food channel was just starting. So so that's exactly why I did it and then I left because I wasn't the only one having those thoughts at that time, right? This was before Blue Apron, this was before any of that. And this was just I mean Emerald was probably the biggest presence. This was before Malto Mario, it was before all of that. So it was just getting it was before Rachel Ray. It was just starting to start. Mm. And then when I hit it, when it, then it just, it was everywhere. Food Network was everywhere. I tend to have very um, prescient timing. <laughs> the dot-com, right? I hit dot-com in 94, 95, just as it's taking off. The food thing I hit, you know, in the 2000s, just as it's taking off. And so, so and coaching you, now too. So how did you uh, get a cooking show? How did I get a cooking show? So I went to work for Martha Stewart. Um, because if I was going to learn domesticity, she was going to teach me. I wasn't going to buy her magazine. I was going to work for the woman. Um, so while I was there, my first day was when all the proceedings came out where she, where there was a lawsuit where she eventually was going to go to jail. So the entire tenure of mine at Martha, that cloud was hanging over our heads. I worked. How, for- how did she handle it, like in a professional level? Uh, Just in terms of continuing <laughs> to run her company. She ran her company. So I. 
at, at that time, I was working at the TV. I helped launch a magazine called Everyday Food. Then I worked in, in all the magazines down um, here in New York, weddings and kids and all that stuff. And then I went to the TV show we shot out of Connecticut. And so I worked with her two days a week. I was with her. You know, she, I was prepping the cooking segments and everything. Her office was next to mine. Um, and it would suck because we'd be taping a show and she'd get a call for her lawyers and she'll be like, I have to take that. And she'd walk off set and she, she's talent, but she's Martha and there's lawsuit. So we'd have to wait. That means there's a lot of people standing on set and we're about to go into overtime and you know, production people are all freaking out about it. We're just like, okay, please don't let this be a bad call. And if she'd come back, if it was a bad call, you'd know it. And like here she is facing jail. So you're saying you know it because her stress, she couldn't uh, obviously She's be- bad. She's pissed. Yeah. Yeah. She was pissed. There, you know, you know at the time they were going after her. But she she did something not right. She made a mistake. She wasn't contrite. She didn't own up to it. Mm. At that time, there were lots of other people who she was friends with also making those mistakes, also not no, owning up to it, but not being pursued by the law. Mm. What she did was wrong. But the gray area in which she lived was confusing for her. Yeah. Still wrong, still not okay. Still, she wasn't contrite, all not good. But it was hard because they chose to go after her, right? If everyone flips, flies through the red light, but they go after you, you're going to be kind of pissed. You still went through the red light, but you're like, but what about all these other guys? So I think that was in the air. Mm-hmm. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. And it was a bit of sexism. So so, so you have this great pedigree of working for Mar- Martha Stewart. Mm. Um, what, what happened next? So what happened next was because she was going to jail, they were trying to groom people from within Martha Stewart mm. to start getting on camera. Right place, right time, right? I was there to learn. And I also was at the TV studio for a reason. I wasn't just cooking, right? I was doing other things. So Everyday Food, the magazine that I helped launch, they were gonna make it into a TV show. And instead of putting Martha at the center of it, as they had with the rest of her media, they wanted people within the organization to step up. So they had you know, 35 of us audition and I auditioned. I was the most junior person there. I had been there for the least amount of time and I auditioned and apparently my Q ratings were really good. I, I still don't really know what Q ratings are, but I know that that's a good thing. So they're like, you're, you're going to be in the show. You're going to be in the show. So they brought in a guy named Lou Eckes and he media trained five of us who they had chosen to be in the show. And there I was getting media trained to be in the show. So I was literally handpicked from inside to be one of the hosts of the show. And I was trained and I was taught and I had been working on a set for over a year. So I knew the mechanics of production from you know, behind the scenes. Now it was my turn you know, to step into the light. And so I did it. And then the show was picked up by PBS and then Martha went to prison. And then uh, I had a better offer at a different company. So I said, I'm gonna be leaving the company now. So I actually left just as that show was being picked up. And so, so- Again, someone listening to this might say, oh, well, it's easy for her. She worked for Martha Stewart. But in your book, you really go into, there's several chapters on the importance of growing your network. And this Mm. is really, you know, this is life or death for a career. People don't realize it's not just about the hard work you put into learning your skills and, and focusing on being positive, although it's all connected. There's a lot of work that needs to be put into building your network. And I'm sure this is, you know, it wasn't like you just snapped your fingers and you were working for a top.com and you snapped your fingers again and suddenly you're working for oh, Martha no. Stewart <laughs> and you snap your fingers again and suddenly Lifetime is like banging your door no. down. Um, let's let's start talking into, well, I do want to figure out how you made the transition from, you know, TV cook cooking personality to life coach, but let's flip around a little bit. Let's talk about your book. Sure. Uh, uh, Growing your network, someone listening yeah. to this, what's like five things I can do today to grow my to network? To grow your network? So first of all, you already have a network. So the first thing you can do is identify the network that exists. And in the book, the book is really meant to be a coaching experience. So there are lots of questions, lots yeah. of stop points. Tons of exercises, by the way. This is great. If people read this book, and, and hopefully they will, there's a, there's a ton of exercises. I You have action stop points and you have questionnaires. I encourage people to fill in every blank here because it's really valuable. Yeah, so so when you're growing, when you're identifying your network, that chapter is chapter four. It is thick. Um, and I say, you know, think of 
five to seven people from high school who you just loved? Or what the hell are those people doing today? You might know from Facebook, but just identify it. Was it the valedictorian, the salutatorian, the really smart guy that got passed over, the guy that kind of was really weird and artsy and grabbed his guitar and moved to LA? Like, who are those people? When Who are the standout people for you? Chances are you're on someone's standout list and there are people on your standout list. That's your network, right? So if I wanted tomorrow to go into finance, who are the people I know who've done really well with money, either starting companies or they're good investors, or I'm like, how the hell did he become a millionaire? I could make a list like that. And so you obviously can. I'm guessing that your listeners can too. You know people who've done well. We all know people who in high school, we kind of looked over and then, oh my God, I can't believe I'm looking at them on the Today Show. You know what I mean? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I've had experiences like that where I would be looking at the Today Show and I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so from junior high school. Mm -hmm. But then I feel I'm not going to reach out to him. Probably everyone's reaching out to him or her or whatever. Like I feel like, oh, he'll think, oh, he's just reaching out to me because I just was on the Today Show. Right. So, so yes, that that's what impedes your network. So number one, identifying your network means looking at the network that's already there. You have nodes and relationships. You have many spokes out there on the planet. You have shared experiences with these people. If you reach out and say, Hey, congratulations. You looked great. It was great to see you. Okay, cool. I like that. So expecting nothing in return. Give. Don't don't ask. Just give. When my book came out, I was shocked by some of the people who reached out to me. I was delighted. There were people I had, Scott Horn comes to mind. We drove back and forth to Cornell all the time. I haven't seen him since I graduated from Cornell. Like, Scott Horn shows up to give me a what's up. It thrills me. It's great. I'd love to hear from him again. Anything I can do to help him, I absolutely will. He just reached out to say congratulations. That was so nice. People love to hear from you. Also, I found that the people who are at the top are most likely to reach back and give you a leg up. People are most likely to lend lend that hand. And we're often more afraid. I remember listening to Hillary Clinton at some point was talking about some night, there was some tragedy that happened to her when she was first lady and no one called. I was like, how did nobody call Hillary Clinton, right? Think of all her friends, all the people she knows, all the, nobody called. But that's like, that's like, you know, the pretty girl never being asked out because everyone's intimidated. Was that sexist? I use that as an no, example. No, <laughs> we all know your example. It's okay. So, but, so like no one's like, no one's going to call Hillary Clinton because she's the first lady of the United States. They assume she has an, a, like six layers of staff to, who are calling her first. Nope. Same thing happened to Martha. I remember Martha talking to us about, you know, she was in the middle of a divorce. This is another great thing about working for Martha. You get really intimate, right? She's going to talk to you in a room of the 100 people that work for the TV show and say, here's what's going on with me. And this was actually when she was going to jail. She said, I remember when I first got divorced, everyone was at my house shooting a Halloween cover. And I was in my crazy Halloween makeup because Halloween is like one of her favorite holidays. And she was in her crazy witch makeup or whatever. And she was all alone in her house looking in the mirror, taking off her makeup. And she describes like, I'm just alone taking off my makeup in the mirror and saying, this is why no one will marry you. Who would put up with this? Mm. Right? Heartbreaking. But that's Martha. That's Martha, right? 
So whoever your friend, maybe your friend is Martha, give Martha a call. Go give her a call, give her a hug, bring her a strudel. She'd love it. So whoever your friend is, don't underestimate the power of reaching out just to say, hey, you're awesome. I see you. And, and I think there's there's something here too, which is uh, it's a mixture of quality and quantity. So it could be I reach out to Martha Stewart and she doesn't reply. But if I reach out to 100 Martha Stewart's, one or two might reply. You bet. And particularly if, I have not, if I'm not expecting anything in return. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, James, to be totally honest, I'm, I'm so grateful to be sitting here with you. Why is this happening? My husband wrote, my, I wrote a book. My husband reached out to you. You and my husband have a relationship. We've met before. I told him, I, it would be a dream for me to be on James's show. I think James is amazing. He wrote Choose Yourself. You remember I read it over that vacation. I was like, James this, James that for like two months. I was like, this is my dream. He's like, I'm going to reach out. Well, and it, it's funny because I've read some studies that your secondary connections are often the most valuable in terms of finding new opportunities. So by secondary connections, like Aaron's a first right. connection, and then I know you through Aaron, right. you know, your husband, right. and Aaron I've worked with on and off since 2002. Mm-hmm. Like, so I've known Aaron for 16 years. So uh, uh, now, of course, if Aaron wanted to come on the podcast also, I'd have him on the podcast. But <laughs> but again, it's most opportunities come because, because it's exponentially larger when you have the connections of your connections. Most opportunities come from that exponential, exponentially larger group. Bingo. So chapter four is all about identifying your existing network, which is vast. And chapter five is about expanding your network. So going through that group of people who love you and want the best for you, um, I, I ask people to do this exercise. You know, tell me about yourself, right? Now tell me about your best friend. You could go on and on and on about how wonderful your best friend is much more easily than you can do that for yourself. So when you use that secondary network, there's a, there's a friend in the middle who's going to go on and on and on about how wonderful you are. And everything they're saying is totally accurate, of course. Um, also, you think about, you know, how did you meet your significant other? Did someone introduce you? How does that person feel knowing that they were the connector of you and your significant other? So people sometimes will say, oh, I don't want to ask that person for a favor. I don't want to ask for an introduction. Oh, I don't want to put them out. You're not putting them out. You're giving them an opportunity to make a, a shittick in, in Yiddish. It's called a shittick, right? A connection. You're setting people up. You're making a shittick. It's a good thing. It's so funny because one time I had a, a, a deal to write a book uh, called, so I'd written a book called The Power of No, mm-hmm. which is how to say no to things that would basically be negative for you and, right. and, and waste of your time and so on. But um, after I wrote that book, I had a really hard time asking people to say, you know, like saying, hey, can I go on your podcast? Or hey, <laughs> can you write a review or whatever? And so it was such a difficult time, but I learned a lot. So I was so I, my next book was going to be The Power of Ask, and which is basically how to use, you know, how to ask in different situations. Lovely. Um, I never wrote the book though, and uh, ended up. I didn't even return the money for that at the advance. I have to admit. <laughs> so hey, James. House, hey, house. I'm sorry. <laughs> I owe you a tiny amount of money, but it's okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll write the book eventually. But it's Good hard book. to ask though. I can't do it. That's why I couldn't write the book. I couldn't. James, I really why don't we time. co-author that? We All can right. co-author. All right, it. we could. We could do hey, it. Hey, house, you're back in the game. <laughs> so, but it is hard to. It's hard to do that, and it's really important. Yeah, I work with a lot of clients. They'll be like, oh, I just can't write that email. It's like, come on, let's do it. We're going to do it together. You dictate, I scribe. You can dictate it. You just can't write With it. My brains and your typing abilities. Hey. Right, Steve? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I do that all the time with clients. And I'll have a client, you know, having to send a text to someone who's waiting to have an informational interview with them. They just can't do it. They'll write the text, they'll throw the phone, and by the end of the session, they've got a date. You know what I mean? It's hard to do the ask. Sometimes having the support of someone to do it helps. But like, uh, you know, again, I don't want people to think, oh, you know, he's just writing me now because I'm famous or I have a big podcast or a big Instagram following or whatever. Mm. Like, I just feel, I feel funny asking for, in those cases, you're asking for favors. You're not just saying, um, hey, good job on getting that great big podcast. Let's make this real. Do you have an example? Uh, do I have an example of somebody that you've been wanting that I would to reach like out to, ask? to? Usually, I'm pretty low key. Uh, I'm not. I don't really do a lot of asking. He and I have talked about it because there are some times where he says, "I don't like to ask," and then I'll say to him, "Well, you've helped that person an awful lot." Like, and he's had different examples. And um, 
Can I ask this question differently? What's yeah. a recent ask you made that went well? Jasmine. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I did ask someone to marry me and she said yes. <laughs> but, but that was that's a little easier. You sort of sort of pre-bake that in. It's like preheating the oven, marinating the fish ask. overnight. It's a big ask. Yeah. So, but uh, but I, I I don't know. I really because I've gotten so used to not asking. I don't really. Steve does the asking. Yeah. I and I. It's funny because um, one of my favorite expressions: if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yep. Yep. You know and. Um, but I also think a corollary to that question is, I'm not doing your job, I read your book as well, I enjoyed it, but is when did you ask somebody and they said no and how bad was that? It, Great, you know, Life yes. goes on too, right? Like yes. You've asked yeah. people stuff and remember I asked you to reach out to a couple of people who just and dismissed you and I said, it's okay, try them again. And, you know, like so yeah. many pe- some people you've helped yeah, that's and true. And they Sometimes, never got back to you. And then I, I always do feel like, okay, maybe it'll be on the third time or the fourth like just time. The, like just in the context of this podcast, uh, like sometimes I'll ask a guest, they won't respond, or they'll say no, but eventually we often win them over. Nice. So, but that's usually, you know, either Steve persisting or me persisting. Oh, but like, uh, for instance, Joe Rogan has a very popular podcast, like the number one podcast. I've tweeted out at him. He's retweeted my podcast post before I tweet out at him, hey, I'm gonna be in LA. Can I go on your podcast? And you know, that was a no. But but yeah, life went on. Uh, he didn't say no, by the way. He just didn't respond. Yeah, yeah. So uh uh and a lot of people were tweeting, Joe, have him on. But um but it's okay. Life goes and we, but I also think we on. eventually will get you bet Joe it's on, not a no, it's will. it's a not and, yet. Yeah. It's interesting. So this is so interesting to me because I I so much I was so nervous about asking if we could be, if I could be on this show. And now it's so interesting to hear, well, you get nervous too about asking Joe Rogan, right? So anyone you're nervous about, they have their own nervous people. <laughs> you know, everyone's human. Everyone's trying to do the same thing. I, I'm nervous about everyone though. I'm nervous about everything. So I'm trying to think of other asks. Uh, what's another ask for um, me? I think... Well, you have this comedy club. Sometimes maybe you're, are you reluctant to ask people to come and perform here? Or, or sometimes I'm even reluctant yeah. to ask to perform here. And, <laughs> and it's not own the place. <laughs> so uh, I always have to be, I'm always nervous. But it's a hard thing to ask. Right. So then, so either you can sit with that and say, you know what? Asking isn't my thing. That's why I've got Steve. Yeah. Steve's my asker. Steve's my go-to ask. Here, here's what I tend to do. I tend, this is, if if I really do, the, my version of the power of ask, I over deliver first. Mm-hmm. So I will, like, let's say you, I will come up with, let's say I was asked, I wanted to ask you for something. I will come up with 10 ways you could market this book mm-hmm. in new and innovative mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. and 10 things I can do to help you market mm-hmm. it. I would send that list to you. It'd be very concrete mm-hmm. and tactical mm-hmm. and very easy for you to execute. You could just write back and say, okay, go for it. And then I feel like, Okay, let's meet and discuss. And I have, you know, my Trojan horse in there somewhere, which is my ask. You've earned the right by giving. You've right. given the value first. But it's huge, huge over delivering. That's the only way I feel comfortable asking. Which, which I feel is on the one hand, there's a positive side to that. But on the other hand, there is a a lack of uh, self worth in yeah, there too. I hear that. So I don't know how to balance that. You can accommodate it, mm-hmm. or you can decide. You have to decide if that's a problem that you really have. It doesn't sound like this is a problem you want to solve. It sounds like you've got Steve to help you, and then you've got this um, legacy of over-delivering with your Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. It it sounds like it works for you. It doesn't sound like it's something you want to overcome. Yeah, but it might be, like like I said, indicative, indicative of other problems in other areas of life, like this lack of self-worth. I feel I have to over-deliver as opposed to just, hey, can you do this for me? Um, uh, other people say that to me, and um, I'm like, yeah, of course. But for me, I have to, I have to over deliver. Yeah. And so, what? Can I ask you why? Why are you sometimes fearful about asking? Then you just great wrote question, a book? super question. Because um, you don't want to hear no. Because no feels so sad. No, yeah. no feels bad. No feels like oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, they've confirmed I'm not worth it. Right. 
Right. So that feels sad. But why give the, you know, that's the Eleanor Roosevelt quote. You can't, no one can hurt. Why give that power away? That person says no to me because it's not convenient to have them on the podcast. So that means I'm not worthy of what? It means they're booked. <laughs> they're having a podcast on fishing and I'm not relevant to their podcast. That's what it means. So, so, so it's like a couple, so networking, there's a couple layers here. One is there's just kind of like building the, the, the connections between the nodes. Mm. There's like sort of reaching out, hey, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Then there might be some way to kind of just get back in touch a little bit more, you know, like like keeping gra- like how much how how much if someone's looking to shift careers, how much of their day do you think? Let's say it takes six months to a year to make the shift. Mm-hmm. It might may take two years, three years, four years, whatever. But how much of their day do you think they should spend on networking? Like how much do you, do you, of your day right now do you spend on networking? You're promoting a book. So, someone looking to change careers. So, uh, my husband, right? He recently went through a job change. It took. I, I know. I talked to him quite a bit about it. <laughs> there you go. He was networking with you. It took seven months, right? During that time, he received four offers. He networked about four to six hours a day, and networking is every day. He was coming into the city, multiple meetings, phone conversations, flying to Baltimore, flying out. Um, hey, this is the kind of work I'm looking for. You know, do you know anybody who's in that? Every time he had a conversation, he left with five to ten more names. Right, he has a vast network. After twenty five years as a journalist, he has a, he has the biggest network of anyone I know. He had said like the vice president of the United States on his Yahoo show. Yeah, yeah, and Clinton. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's he knows a lot of people. So he's got this great network. And actually, I'm only talking about the people, not even the guests, just the people he's worked with. Right, the other journalists, producers, writers. That network is vast, and he's hired a lot of people. So a lot of people know that he's likely to hire them again. <laughs> so they want to put him in places where they might want to work, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone was willing to help him because he's been so helpful to them. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, again, like that's four to six hours. Someone's working in their cubicle. They, they're thinking, I can't, I, I really want to, I got to pay the mortgage. I got to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. I have three kids I'm raising. I, I don't. I, I got to do my job. I don't want to network four to six right, hours right, right. a day. So to, I'm glad you clarified that. So when he was looking for a job, he was not working. So that's four to six hours a job if it's your full-time job to find a job. I don't believe in working eight to 12 hours trying to find a job. I think you're going to exhaust yourself. Read a book, go for a jog, do things around your house, be healthy, get yourself mentally and physically healthy, meditate, do the things you want to do and don't have the time to do. Use that time in addition to your four to six hours of networking. Right, Because, and I just want to add, you have a very great list of you know, another action stop point that you kind of have to make sure your mindset is, is healthy around all these different categories. And you mentioned health, spirituality, friends, family, love and partnership, personal development, creativity, and so on. Um, and it is important that you're not just focused on like, well, I'm a great computer programmer, so I'm going to just get a job being doing computer programming. It's more like what, so we've had on the podcast a couple times Scott Adams who wrote writes the cartoon Dilbert and he talks about a talent stack and you kind of have to build your talent stack like you know he mentions to about himself he's not the funniest guy in the world but he's funny and he's not the best drawer in the world but he knows how to draw he he's not the best IT guy in the world but he worked in an IT department but combine all three of that talent stacked together, and he has the cartoon Dilbert. Yeah. So, and 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 your checklist of your of the things that are important to have a, a good mindset in that's almost a way of kind of creating that talent stack for yourself. Yeah, that's what you're describing are the different aspects of the whole life, your whole life, the whole life model. There's ten components of your whole life. Fun and creativity is one of them. When's the last time you had a really good time? Fun, just just raw play, right? Every day, all day. There that's you go. I, that's, nice. That's all I do. I don't. I don't really work. You're high on the fun scale. Not everybody is like that, right? But so some people, when they're looking for that job, make sure you've got fun happening because that's going to help your brain as well. Um, if the person is working and they want to change jobs, no, I'm not going to ask you to do four hours of networking. I am going to ask you to do, you know, either an hour or two of networking a day, or give me one day on the weekend where you give me that eight hours of really working. I am going to ask you to go out after work, have lunches, have breakfasts, get in front of people, meet people. So so it's interesting. Like So so Steve, who is sitting right here, producer of the show, um, how many emails a day do you send out for, for potential guests? 
Well, I feel like it's a tough way to answer that because when you say that, then it makes us look like sad sacks. Like we, but I think you have to. Add, I definitely try and focus on my actions, not my outcomes. So I try and send at least fifty a day. You know, I just make sure. You know, come like yesterday, I made sure I had, you know, probably one hundred fifty like emails ready to go, and some are responding to people. Some are saying, "Hey." You know, I'm reaching out just in case. And I think people appreciate it. I think they appreciate if you're the first person to email them or, oh, wow. What's great there is he'll send out 50 knowing, planning that most people will say no. He wants them to say no, actually. Because then two years later, it's like, oh, I said no to him that one time, but I know him now. I recognize the name. And so then he asks something else, they'll say yes. So uh, that's incredible strategy. Um, if you're going for a job hunt, I mean, that's, I mean, you're building a business. Yeah. I, well, I also, like I said the other day on this very podcast, he's the Honda Civic. He sells himself. I right. mean, he's man of the hour, too sweet to be sour. So if you don't want to do I feel like it, a Honda Civic is a, very, a second rate car, though. <laughs> when you use that example, like I would rather have a Honda Civic. <laughs> you rather well, it shows you, but it also shows you the, the the virtue of sloganeering, right? Like, you know, they say it like it, Fox is fair and balanced. But I think <laughs> I do know what I'm selling. I can evangelize about James because mm-hmm. he's a great interviewer. Look at you. Mm-hmm. This was your. This is the zenith of your month. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being on with James. <laughs> you know, yes. uh, so, so definitely so, yeah. in accord. Definitely in accord. So 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 okay. So the other thing that's really important is you. You know, you went from be, you know, having this great career, you know, being a media personality and cooking to life coaching. Mm. Other people listening to this are probably wondering, well, okay, I do want to, there is always a what's next. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I figure out what that what, what's next mm-hmm. is? Mm-hmm. And, and I think I always ask people this, and there's always interesting nuances in the answers. But if you're starting from scratch and you're unhappy with where you are right now, but you just don't know what can I be really passionate about? Because again, the person who's really passionate about something and you talk about being in that state of flow, you have to be really passionate about something to be in that state of flow. The person who's really passionate about something is going to beat out, not that the world's so competitive, but the, you're going to beat out the person who's not so passionate. But most people don't know what they could be really passionate about. Mm-hmm. They spent their lives doing the, the algorithmic work. Yeah, right. And when I... When you ask me, and I used to ask my parents all the time, what am I good at, mom, dad, what should I do? And they'd be like, I don't know, you're good at so many things, whatever you want, honey. That is not useful. Mom, dad, love you guys, but that, that leads you to option paralysis, right? I'm just so talented, where do I start? So you don't sit and try to think about what you wanna do, you just relax and it's revealed to you, right? So when I was teaching cooking, I noticed that as much as I loved cooking, and I was a passionate cooking teacher, I loved it, I taught as many hours a day as I could, What started to become more interesting than the cooking was the real questions that people would ask me about life, right? I'd teach cooking classes to these 20-year-old women who really wanted to get married. And we'd start talking more about the kind of partner they wanted to have and who they wanted to meet and the kind of life they wanted to have. That conversation became more interesting to me than the cooking. That's, that's, That's interesting. So what would you tell them? How, what would be the first step in for these young women meeting the, the partner of their life? Well, (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, you met the partner of your life. I did, I did. And actually, it was I'll, I'll use that as an example. It was at thestreet.com. And I had had a recent breakup that sucked, sucked. And I was in a bad mood. I had, whatever, I cut my hair. I always cut my hair after a breakup or when I have kids, as my hair is short now. And uh, I, my husband remembers, he says, you had a really short hair. I was like, yeah, I remember that one. But um, so I walked in and I really wanted to meet a great guy who wanted to have a family and just be normal. What I, year was this? 1999. Okay. I was dating a lot of high-flying guys who were very, very successful, but just didn't want to, just didn't want to stop being themselves. They didn't want to add more people to their lives—not a partner, not a family, right? They just wanted to do their thing, and I wanted someone who was more interested in being part of a group. Um, so when I met him, I was in uh, at thestreet.com, and I walked by his cube, and he was kind of the boss there. And it, his cube was totally decorated with pictures of his daughter, and by his daughter, five-year-old at the time. And he was really good looking and tall and handsome and high achieving and running this editorial thing. And I was like, huh, he's successful. He can handle a job. He looks good in a suit, like this guy. He's so into his kid. Whose cube is decorated like this? He's the big macher here and he's got the five-year-old drawings everywhere. And he was married. And I said, this guy exists. 
he's an example of the kind of guy I'm looking for. Not this guy, not this guy, but there's more like him out there. If he exists, there's more like mm -hmm. him. I know it. And that was it. And I shook his hand professionally. And a few years later, he became separated from his wife and he reached out to me via LinkedIn and asked me on a date and let me know he was separated and asked me on a date, which was very cute and weird and not the way most people use LinkedIn. But um, he gave me faith that that archetype existed. He embodied the archetype. I never thought it would be him. I never thought he would become available. When he did, I was pretty psyched. But I knew I could believe in that as a possibility. So back to the kitchens where I'm cooking with women, those conversations about their lives and designing their lives became more interesting to me than the cooking. So I went back to NYU and I got a coaching certificate because I was like- Of course, you went back to a, <laughs> get a master's degree in something. To, I, I to, do like the, that. I do like that. Yeah, so I just, I, I, wanted, I wanted to coach, but I knew I was out of my depth in terms of the responses I could give them. Uh, they were coming to me with big things and I was like, I, I want to do more than a friend here but I don't have the answers or the information in my head to give you. So I, I got the certification so that I could really do it. But it was revealed to me. I didn't think I wanted to become a coach. Coaching didn't exist when I went to college. It just wasn't a thing. Yeah. So it had to be created and I had to meet it with my own need and desire and interest. And then, okay, so now let's say again, uh, uh, someone wants to figure out what are they passionate about? Mm. What are some steps that they can do? Look at what you spend your time doing. If I just gave you a week off, just you, what are you going to do? Where are you going to spend that time? If I take you to a bookstore, where do you go in the bookstore? I use that technique. I tell people that technique too. Yeah. Which section wouldn't you mind reading all the books in that section? <laughs> and then, and here's where it gets tricky because a hobby is not a job. It can be, but sometimes it isn't. So then you have to put in money, right? Is part of this your contribution? Do you want to become an advocate? Do you want to make a social contribution? I have a lot of people who have very successful, lucrative careers and come to me to switch to make an impact. One became an an advocate, the, head, the executive director of New Jersey 11th for Change, who's flipping districts now post-Trump. I have someone else who went back to school for social work at 53 because she's always wanted to be an addictions counselor. And, and now she will be. How did she handle her, The you know, kind of missing the, the money? paying work, yeah. Well, her partner makes a lot of money and has always so said, helps. well, she's always said, I've got you. Stop complaining about your job. Go do that thing you always wanted to do. And she's like, I can't, I've got to make my own money. And she's like, we make money for our household and you're driving me nuts with your well, complaining. You know, that that's a great question because I bet you that's a common thing you encounter is that, Many partnerships, relationships, romantic relationships, marriages, they're, they're, they're two people. One person might make more money than the yep. other. Always it's the case. One person makes more money than the other. Should they, I mean, and do that, how do they create the mindset, hey, it's ours? Mm. You know, how do mm -hmm. we, we're, we're a real partnership. Mm -hmm. It's like us, Inc. And now let's decide what's best for the different components of us, Inc. Yes. I could bring in the money because I enjoyed bringing in the money. You can do now your dream instead of bringing in one-tenth the money. So how do, you, how do they kind of make that leap? Often that leap is hard to make. You bet. In her case, um, that's a message her partner had been giving her for 10 years. Her partner sent her to me and she came to me and it was clear what she wanted to do. She couldn't let herself do it. But after talking about it, we talked about it for a few months then she took a break because her parents were sick. And then she went away with her partner and per perhaps it was her parents being sick and her seeing that partnership, right? We have one life, right? That that meeting with reality. And then she was, uh, she was in a sweat lodge with her partner and she was like, I'm gonna do it. She just needed enough of her own shifts to realize I need to do this. Yeah, and um, I think one of the issues is, and you bring this up, it's all a matter of math. Like I only have so many more <laughs> weeks, weekends, years to do this thing that I want to do. So at 53, you know, if she wants to be a social worker, there's going to be a couple of years of school yep. and then she's probably going to want to slow it down at 65 to 70 years old. So there's only, or, or not, but maybe go longer, but there's only going to be so many more years now where she can achieve this mm -hmm. dream. If she doesn't mm -hmm. do it now, she's never going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then, but it seems like then part of what the coach does is kind of remind people of this math and, and, help people grow this network so that that could help your math depending on which direction mm -hmm, you're going mm -hmm. how to help find that passion 
but also most importantly, or maybe not most importantly, allow people to figure out how to give themselves permission to do what they really want to do. And I, I noticed this in, um, you, you probably have seen the documentary, I Am Not Your Guru with, with Tony Robbins. I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about. And, and Tony Robbins has been on the podcast a couple of times. I feel like a lot of what he's doing is not necessarily empowering people to do X. He empowers people to give themselves permission to do X. It's interesting. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I think a lot of it, and, and people say like, oh, well, I could give myself permission to do something. It's really hard to do that. Yeah. Like I can't give myself permission to do many of the things that I want to do. It's like you need to talk, have someone talk you into it somehow. Right. You're hiring me for a reason. We're all clear on what that thing is. So how do we get you to shift your mind so that you can liberate yourself to do it? I, I think that's very, I think that's a great point. It's the permission. Mm -hmm. And so can they do that? I mean, I think, like you said, you're, what's amazing about your book is, is that not to say they don't have to call you, they should call you for life coaching, <laughs> but they don't need to call you. This is a, this book is a life coaching experience. You yes. can go through the different exercises and the different action points mm -hmm. and fill everything out mm -hmm. and find, you know, weave your way through that maze to give yourself permission to yeah. find out what you're passionate about. I think a very important part of your book is all the different ways to treat yourself better because if you're not treating yourself better, you're not going to be able to give yourself permission to do big and successful things. You bet. Because you'll be looking down on yourself. You bet. It's definitely designed to be a DIY life coach, a pocket life coach. My services are not inexpensive and I recognize that. So I wanted to give people more access to the absolute best of my coaching techniques. There's, there's, um, there's, there's one fascinating study here where uh, you mentioned... A bunch of people in their seventies or or uh, went to a retreat where everything was like how it was twenty years ago, and coming out of that, they all felt twenty years younger. Yeah, and they were healthier. Like everything, in their brain, their were healthier. eyesight was better. How can I implement that in real life? I actually kind of do, actually. Yeah, but you kind of live that, don't you? <laughs> how, how how can most people do that? How can people? So you're saying, how can people live their best? Yeah. How can people be their best? Um, surrounding yourself with, I was I was listening to your uh, Jen Sincero podcast earlier today, and she was talking a lot about choosing her thoughts. Right, choosing your thoughts. What what are you going to spend your time on? You you will become what you think. One hundred percent. She spent you know a year taking herself from thirty k to six figures just by doing that. She became a student of the person she wanted to be. I actually had a phone call from a client right as I was walking here, and she was just saying, you know, I'm just. I'm, She's like, I'm a piece of shit. I'm a nothing. I can't. I go, if you want to believe that, that is probably what you will be. Can but, but, you? But, but sometimes those thoughts are so ingrained. It's yeah. because, it's because I don't know, their their parents yeah. were, were told them that or yeah, something happened like totally. 30 years ago. So how right. you can't just sort of like change it. Yes, you can. You can. You totally can. The first thing is, oh, stop. That's that thought again. It's actually excellent when I do it in a coaching session because- I have a huge whiteboard in my office. The whole wall is a whiteboard and I'll just write the words on the board and then I'll keep a tally of how many times you say it. Yeah, so I, okay, so that's, so awareness. I do agree. I think that is the technique is 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 labeling it an awareness. Just I'm stopping, it. it's almost like a meditation. Like, it's, you know, in meditation, you sort of sit there and you say, you kind of are ostensibly trying to think about nothing, but what happens is you can't just think about nothing. You just catch yourself every time yes. you're thinking about something. So it's aware. Meditation is like practice for that. Bingo. And, and and I think that's a kind of meditation too. Like, oh, I'm walking along in the day and I just thought a negative thought about myself. Or I thought a negative thought about some random stranger walking across the street, which is almost as unhealthy. Yes. And I, I think that's that's really important, which is why, again, you know, you have all these stop points, you have all these reflection stop points, mm -hmm. action stop points. I think this book is just so valuable um it was it was so inspirational to me because i'm constantly figuring out new i'm always frustrated with myself i always think i'm trying to think what's next like i'll get excited about something for a year or two years and then i think to myself okay what's the next thing i'm going to do and and i go through some sort of angst for a few months until the next thing is birthed out of me the birth the the next thing comes from a place of angst uh, no, usually it comes, I'll tell you where it usually comes from. It usually comes from something I wanted to do when I was 12 years yes. old. And then how did it age so that, <laughs> you know, like I, I loved interviewing people when I was 12 years old. Yeah. I was in the South, Brun South Brunswick Central Post interviewing people, you know, do, I had an article interviewing people when I was 12 years old. And now how has it aged? Well, 
my interview skills got better than when I was 12. <laughs> and there's no law. I don't even think that newspaper exists anymore. And now there's podcasts. And so you look at how things have aged, how your interests have aged. Mm -hmm. Like one of my very first podcasts here was Matt Berry, who's the uh, fantasy sports anchor on ESPN. He was interested in sports as a kid, but obviously he wasn't an athlete. Yeah. So his interest aged mm -hmm. into fantasy sports and then being in the media business and so on. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but, Again, and I think I think that's one of the techniques to finding your passion. You mentioned also going to the library and yeah. sometimes just reading a new book. I got interested in investing from reading a book in in 1999 about investing, and it like, oh my gosh, this is what was the book? It was uh, Market Wizards by Jack Schwager. That's so cool. Yeah, the whole first chapter um, is all about what were you into as a kid? Like, what's the last costume you wore? Who were your best friends in the right? We're right next to summer in the summer when you were ten. You were bored. Like, what did you do? Me, I was always playing with typewriters. I didn't play with dolls. I played with typewriters. It's like a weird thing for an eight-year-old to do. Why? I liked ideas. I liked words. I liked writing stories, right? In high school, I wanted to be part of this leadership group that was counseling other, other students. I wasn't allowed into it because I had too many extracurriculars. I sound like that p character from that election <laughs> movie. What's your face? Um, Reese Witherspoon. Yes, yeah. that one. Like, Tom Perotta wrote the excellent novel. <laughs> I like that. I like that book before it was a movie. Yeah, there you go. So, anyway, I, I I always wanted to help people and help people be their best, right? And our our years is dot com. My years is dot com. I saw people say, "I'm going to invent the, invent this thing. It's going to be really important," and they did it, right? So I have a belief that people can do what they want to do. Now I take that 12-year-old who's now 52 and has lost sight of that belief and of those passions over the last 40 years. And I invite those passions back into their room, back into the brain, and then make it true. Right, and also, again, being creative about how those passions aged. You're not going to be a basketball player at 52. Maybe you could be a writer about basketball. You could be a novelist about basketball. You could be an announcer. You bet. You could be a fantasy. You could be a gambler. You know, whatever. <laughs> uh, uh so it's so interesting. Well, I do, again, highly recommend people do all the actions. Sit with this book. It's almost like take a weekend with your partner if, if possible. Sit with this book, answer all the questions, do all the exercises. I think really important to start the networking if you haven't already done that. Networking, I realized, like I think, I always think of myself as a poor networker, but now here I am 30 years later and I actually have a pretty good network. I'd so, say. So, and it's kind of, I don't, I can't even figure out why I have a good network because I never, I'm really horrible at keeping in touch with people. Like your husband, Aaron's great at keeping in touch with people. I'm just so bad at it, but somehow it keeps Well, you happening. make up for it with your over-delivery because when, when you get James, you get like a, a reduction, right? You get a very intense product. Right. <laughs> you might not get them all the time, but when you get them, you get a, a high quality product. That, I, I hope you're right. I hope that's, that's <laughs> always true. So, so Allison Task, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Personal revolution, how to be happy, change your life, and do the thing you've always wanted to do. I kind of need this book every six months. I'm so, here for you, James. So I'm here. All right, I'm going to take you up on that. I might call you, and I saw your rates on your website. I can afford it. <laughs> and I'm going to call you and read this book again and again. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I look forward to it. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you.